Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discovered a groundbreaking approach to addiction, discussed comics in Chicago, and learned about rebellion in Mexico. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and brand new music from some of Chicago's top local artists. It's the Lumpen Week in Review for August 13th, 2021. The boys from I-94 talked to the team behind the book and PBS documentary, The Narcotic Farm. Nancy Campbell and J.P. Olson told us how a groundbreaking public health approach to addiction came to be in 1950s Kentucky, how the drug research program eventually became entangled with the CIA, and why the farm became a centerpiece for American jazz. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Guys, I wanted to start out real quickly uh, with just some background on this, I think just for our listeners who may not be familiar with this. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this story and how the story of this facility in Lexington, Kentucky, in fact, kind of became known to you guys in the first place. Well, I mean, Nancy and I both uh, arrived at the story from different uh, positions. I can give uh, sort of how I came about uh, finding about the story and then sort of how we came together. Um, the short version is I was working as an associate producer for a PBS frontline series on drug policy called the Drug Wars. And part of that job was to go up and down the Eastern seaboard, interviewing people who had been on the methadone program uh, for long periods of time. And the interest was to talk to people who remembered the methadone maintenance program coming in under the Nixon administration and sort of what that, what the tenor of the time was and sort of the, the the general perception among drug users at the time of that program. And what I found in speaking with people um, who were in these programs who were at that point, you know, well into their, often to their 60s and 70s and had been on the methadone program for, for decades, um, a number of them had been uh, either uh, volunteered or been incarcerated at this facility in Lexington, Kentucky. And people kept talking about, I was in Lexington, I was in Lexington. And the way that these um, people I was interviewing talked about it, um, it was as if they had gone to this really special, important place, like the Harvard of where people who get arrested for drug crimes would go. And a lot of the early stories that I heard were, you know, they were testing LSD here. There was this great jazz culture. Uh, it was on this beautiful plot of land. There were these research scientists. A lot of famous people were there. There were all these things that just made me think, like, either these people are, you know, hallucinating, or there's a really interesting American story here that I'm not sure why I don't know about it. And that set me off on a path of um, researching the facility with Luke and I, and then along the way, we crossed paths with Nancy, who had already been doing research on the same subject in a variety of ways. And so we joined forces and and put together both the book and if this is part of a PBS documentary that um, that we all worked on together as, as well. So it's the, the book is essentially a companion along with the, uh, with the film, but that's how I became introduced to the story. And it was, again, it was interviewing people who had been there uh, and the way that they talked about it was so interesting to me. I just thought, I can't believe this isn't already uh, a subject that's been cataloged and created in some kind of narrative that will uh, hopefully stick around for a while. So people will understand what this place was, what it means and how to, it relates to today. I've experienced, well, I've read, I've read The Man with the Golden Arm, I've read The Farm, I've read Junkie, I've read Kentucky Ham, um, we're big. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. We're big. Well, I can, I can talk a little bit about the way I ran into the story. Uh, part of it was through that kind of cultural production, but I was writing a dissertation in the 1990s on drug policy in the 1950s. And there was a hearing in New York city. Um, it was part of the Daniel hearings. Senator price Daniel had hearings on the illicit narcotics traffic. And at that second hearing in New York, there were a bunch of doctors and researchers and psychiatrists, and they were talking about how drug addiction should not be viewed as a crime, but as a public health problem. And they were all from Lexington, Kentucky. And I, myself, I remember thinking, what did they put in the water in Lexington, Kentucky, that these guys all sounded like they were drug policy reformers in the 1950s, a time of increasing criminalization. And so it, that was, yeah, it was just a teaser at first. And then it grew to becoming a bigger a bigger um, kind of thing on my that weighed on my mind, which was really, yeah, what was this place? What were they doing at this place? What did people at this place experience? And uh, that's how we came together to do the project. Well, that's what I was going to say. I had read all those novels in the past. I've read The Mammoth Cult. We've had several Elgrin biographers on the show, well, too. And I had never put two and two together. And then I saw, I, I can't remember where I saw the... Uh, the review of this book and I was like and Mike and I together have decades in recovery and so for us too it has that that aspect as well and it was just the amount of money and creativity and also unethics non-ethical things well, that, yeah well, com that, compassion too yeah but, compassion but, that went into this place you know I, yeah. I was just like why can't we do this now but maybe not you well, know with the experimentation I, I wanted to start right. there just uh, for know, Nancy because remember because, Nancy, yeah. you, you kind of brought this up, and I, I want to make sure we don't get too far ahead of our listeners here. The 1950s, as you just noted yourself, was a time of increased criminality in drug policy. But there was also a commission around this facility and a group of people who wanted to treat it as a public health problem. Can you talk to our listeners about this? Because I think this has real special resonance today. And again, I don't want to get too too far ahead and too into the weeds because I want to make sure our listeners really understand what was going on here. Because I think today when we look at drug policy and drug treatment, many of us know people who are in recovery. Many of us know uh, the scourge, for example, of opiate addiction that is going on in our streets. But people in the 1950s didn't. And so I think it's really important to set that scene. So, Nancy, if you could just take us through that a little bit. Sure, I'll take you through that scene, but I want to I want to go back to the man with the golden arm, the first scene of the movie, which was one of the first uh, depictions, Hollywood depictions of um, narcotic addiction and uh, withdrawal. Frank Sinatra actually goes through withdrawal on screen in that in that movie. But that comes out in the mid 1950s. And what's really interesting about it is that the first scene is all about the narcotic farm. It's all about, is the narcotic farm a prison or is the narcotic farm a hospital? And they actually have a conversation in the bar where uh, the main character gets off the bus with a drum that he's bringing from Lexington because he's learned to play jazz drum in 
side the Lexington facility and they have this big conversation about what's going on here. And that's actually the conversation they were having in the 1950s. So during the 1950s, the American Bar Association and um, the American Medical Association, there were a group of doctors and lawyers who became critical of US drug policy, uh, which in 1951 had the first mandatory minimum sentences. And they became critical of criminalization despite the fact that a lot of people during the 50s were trying to increase minimum sentences. They were trying to increase criminalization, set the death penalty for dealers. Wow. Right. So all of that hardening stuff is happening in the 50s. But you also have the beginnings. Um, and it's not even the beginnings because the narcotic farm opened in 1935 under the banner of public health. And it basically said this problem, narcotic addiction, should be treated as a public health problem, as a medical problem. Right. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, the 50s was uh, still a bit up for grabs, although the story in the film, right, in the narcotic farm uh, film, you very much see the way in which people who were using drugs experienced what they were doing as as if it was a crime, right? Law enforcement was really harsh. People were often forced to go cold turkey in jail cells without any kind of medical assistance whatsoever. And so they experienced the narcotic farm as kind of a mecca, a nirvana, because it was the one place in the country where you could count on getting medical assistance through detox and where you had this kind of compassion uh, among the uh, doctors and um, uh, staff, right? Uh, they were trying to figure out how to help people. And they definitely found some ways to help people. And they were also trying to figure out what kinds of treatment um, work, what's, you know, what's effective, what's not. There was a scientific laboratory in the narcotic farm. They're trying to figure out, well, how can we meet this as a public health problem, as a medical problem? I was just, Mike and I were giggling because Algren absolutely hated the way that Sinatra portrayed the withdrawal symptoms and, and having been through withdrawal myself, they're pretty, they're pretty hilarious. <laughs> but your point is, you know, your point is valid that that was, you know, that's popular culture. And I've seen the movie. And like I said, I've probably read that book three or four times and it just never clicked with me until I picked up the, uh, your book and, um, Clarence Cooper is the farm. I just want to mention if anyone's never read it, it's absolutely phenomenal. <clears throat> you were distracted by Kim Novak in that movie. Yes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so, as everybody is. It's funny. The other uh, the other night, I was watching the film Asphalt Jungle, mm. which I'd never seen, and Lexington get gets mentioned in there as well. I'd never been aware of that, and so it was very much in the culture in the fifties and being promoted in generally a very positive way, um, and sort of to put a button on the fifties, sort of anecdotally in interviewing all of these former either patients or inmates, because there was a distinction, you could volunteer and go there for free treatment, um, or you might be sentenced there because it was determined that you would be a low security risk and it could be that your um, your being arrested was in lieu of trying to get money for a drug problem and you weren't seen as sort of a garden variety dangerous criminal. And so those were, those were the people that were in this facility in terms of um, from the perspective of how did you get there, you either could volunteer or be a prisoner and all in the same grounds, which in itself is extraordinary to think about today. But in, in talking to a lot of the people who were there in the 50s, 
it was really clear to me that, you know, the typical experience of getting arrested at that time, police would take you into, you know, coat rooms and beat on you and, you know, that sort of thing. And as Nancy mentioned, like being forced to to uh, kick your habit cold turkey in a jail cell from which you can, you know, you could clearly die from that. And so there was this very sort of brutal draconian law enforcement aspect to what was going on in the 50s. And Lexington really was one of the few places where you could go to a federally run, I mean, the, really only along with a place in the West in Fort Worth where you could go and get treatment that would look at the problem that you had not as a moral failing, but as a actual, you have a medical problem, you have a problem, we're gonna treat you like you would treat someone who has diabetes or any other um, any other, any other disease of that kind. And it really was um, revolutionary in the perspective from a, from a from a government standpoint. And I would say with very few exceptions, the people that I interviewed who had been both prisoners there and volunteers there spoke very positively about the place and that plays with our sort of perception you think of it's a prison and there's a research lab and they're giving people drugs obviously it must be terrible it must be uh you know it must be this this horrible environment but all signs from speaking with people who were there would point to something very much more complex complex than that and i often invoke this new yorker cartoon where an editor is talking to Charles Dickens, and he says, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, surely it can't be both, Mr. Dickens, and that is very much the narcotic farm. It is two things at one time. It's not easily, you can't easily come down and say, oh, this is a terrible thing. And there were certainly, you know, things that went on there that in today's understanding about ethics and how we think about prisoners would be completely illegal and you'd be run out of town.
Chuck Merch chatted with historian A.S. Dillingham about his book Oaxaca Resurgent. Oaxaca, one of Mexico's most rebellious states, also gave rise to the unique Instituto Nacional Indigenista, which proved instrumental in implementing bilingual education, organizing the local teachers' trade union, and preserving native Oaxacan culture. Dillingham discussed also how the Mexican government spied on indigenous organizers, which had the perverse effect of radicalizing them. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. What happens? What does it say about our understanding of indigeneity when it has all of these contradictions and it starts from a place of colonialism? Yeah, no, I mean, I I, uh, appreciate the question. And I mean, I think when I started to find those the photographs um well i first found stars travel journal which is held in uh, the smithsonian um archives in washington dc uh and he actually has a long history you know um he had a relationship with the university of chicago right so which is a kind of local connection but he was a someone who basically is on the edge of what we might describe as these kind of 19th century you know white European explorers who are part of the kind of pillaging and exploration of the kind of global South and the professionalization of anthropology as like a modern academic discipline that was legitimate. And so, you know, he kind of sits on that kind of intersection uh, of those two tendencies. Um, And so his idea was that he was actually, you know, kind of a moment of this racial science, like phrenology, the idea of uh, you know, that is now, a, we, you know, is a bogus science. Um, but he thought that he could kind of physically measure different racial types uh, and, and even within indigenous populations. And so he thought that if there was a racial hierarchy in which European descended peoples were at the top, even within indigenous populations, um, there would be a racial hierarchy with some indigenous peoples more advanced and not. And so, you know, for me, what I thought was interesting about that story was one that it showed how uh, indigeneity was kind of always this kind of imposed upon category right people were categorized as indigenous often by outsiders like star Um, but I also what I thought was important is that the women in this treaky village in southern Mexico refused right and and uh, you know fought back and uh, you know kind of ran for the hills And so I thought that was an important um, kind of moment of contestation as well, right? That indigenous peoples aren't just victims of these types of policies, but they're actually, you know, challenging, rejecting, speaking for themselves, or in sometimes trying to just not be seen, right? Trying to avoid the gaze of Europeans or or outsiders. Yeah, and it, it just made me think of the colonialism that is inherent within 19th century science, within anthropology, and even in photography. And looking at the photos of the anger on the face of the indigenous people who are being cataloged, you know, I never really thought of that as a kind of a kind of an uprising, kind of a, a revolutionary moment where they were clearly opposing colonialism that you can see in their face that they are against what is taking place to them. Like you're saying, they're, they're not just bystanders. They're not just victims, that they actually stood up to colonialism. How do we view the indigenous differently when we see the anger on the face of people who know that they are being subjected to colonial uh, science? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, um, 
it shows us that colonialism never went without a response, right? Whether we're talking about the arrival of, you know, uh, Europeans in the Americas, uh, you know, in the 15th century, or, you know, in the way that colonialism has all these afterlives, right? So Latin American countries like Mexico, they achieve independence at the beginning of the 19th century, but, you know, which is a, uh, independence, a revolution against colonial rule in the case of Mexico by Spain. Um, but I think what we see is how colonial, uh, colonialism continues, right? And the legacies of colonialism shape our modern uh, institutions, you know, like education uh, and anthropology, but they also shape, as you're describing, you know, the rise of certain technologies like photography, right? And so, you know, um, this is an example of way, the way that photography is kind of connected to racist ideas about human difference. We can use photography to kind of chart differences among human beings, right? And so it was a, you know, I think, um, you know, one scholar describes uh, photography and racism as a toxic blend, right? And you could find other examples, you know, in the United States, there are some very famous photographs uh, around the same time in the turn of the century um, by Edward S. Curtis, who, you know, Teddy Roosevelt endorsed um, as one of the most important artists of the time. But he basically, you know, was taking photographs in the, what was becoming the American West. And, you know, some of his photographs are famous because the titles are like the vanishing Indian, right? And he's using photography to cast native peoples as part of this kind of vanishing past. Um, so photography, you know, isn't a neutral um, technology at this time. Yeah, and I actually have that Edward Curtis book, and I find it very difficult to look at. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, why is there this perceived incompatibility of the, of the indigenous and modernity? Why is there this idea that the two cannot exist? Because it, the, the way that it is often framed is the two are antithetical to one another, that the uh, indigenous can never be in the modern era. They can, they're always stuck in the past. Why is there that sense of an incompatibility with indigeneity and modernity? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. Um, and a lot of people have tried to kind of wrap their heads around this. And of course, Native people have to live with this kind of contradiction, right? This is part of our daily lives. It's, you know, being Native seems, you know, somehow antithetical to the modern condition, right? And so lots of people have tried to work on this. I mean, I think the first thing that's worth noting, and this is something I talk about with students, you know, and others, is that, you know, indigeneity or the category of being Native is fundamentally a colonial concept, right? Um, you know, there were no indigenous peoples in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, but rather there were different groups of people, right? The Mexica, right? There were the Choctaws, there were uh, the Lakota or, um, you know, Diné peoples. None of these peoples understood themselves as indigenous. This is, you know, so in this way, uh, indigeneity is in and of itself a colonial category. Um, and then, of course, I think there's a way in which that definition then defines Native peoples as um, uh, if you are to be Native, you are connected to uh, a particular place or land, and you are connected to a um, civilization that is uh, uh, anchored in the past, right? And so if being Native is somehow about tradition or being anchored in the past, uh, 
then the rise of you know modern technologies, industrial economies, the railroads, automobiles, uh, you know, radio, which is something I talk about in the book. Then somehow there is this um, you know contradiction between being native and engaging in the modern world. Um, and so you know, I just like lots of people before me tried to kind of demolish this idea, right? That you know, native people are participating in the modern condition from its very beginning, right? And that there is no uh, antithesis between the two. And, you know, there's lots, I mean, there's great Native American writers today, you know, in the United States, I'm thinking of like Tommy Orange's uh, uh, relatively new novel, There, There, which is about being native in Oakland, California. And, you know, and just in, in talking about urban Indians, as part of uh, the indigenous experience, right? That there's no, con you know, that uh, Indians ride the subway, right? Or they ride the BART in the Bay Area. Um, so. So, what, happen so you know, what happens when we view a people, or what happens when we view the indigenous as of the past? I guess the, more importantly, what happens to them in the present? And what happens to your future when you're seen as a historical artifact, a relic of a time that has long passed? Right. Well, I mean, the, you know, it's a, a great question. You're, you are uh, cast as a problem to be overcome, right? So if you are somehow cast outside of the modern experience, then for the economy, for education, um, for politics, indigenous people aren't seen as an asset. They're seen as a problem to be overcome, to be transformed, um, sometimes, you know, the word is assimilated. Sometimes the word is integrated. But all of these, um, what this leads to is oftentimes, you know, and throughout the Americas and both North America and South America is projects that are about uh, resolving the Indian problem, right? And this is a, a phrase that came up frequently in the 19th and 20th centuries. The Indian problem is, is something that you and I would kind of understand is, oh, yeah, that's something that needs addressing. Um, and so, you know, national governments throughout the hemisphere try to come up with, you know, policies um, that vary by country, but that are connected by the sense that Native peoples need to be brought up. You know, sometimes these are even considered, right, they're progressive, you know, government intellectuals who imagine, oh, we are going to uplift Native people. And the way you uplift Native people is basically by getting them to discard their culture, their language, their traditional knowledge, and uh, assimilate into, you know, whatever the national language is, English, Spanish. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of ways that, you know, dress, uh, you know, we've been learning a lot, for example, in the last few weeks about, you know, the horrors that were the Indian boarding schools in Canada. Um, and there are parallels in the United States and there's parallels in Mexico in which, you know, native children were brought to boarding schools, not just to be educated, but to basically remove the indigeneity from um, the, those individuals, right? I mean, the uh, Richard Pratt, who runs the Carlisle uh, Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is the biggest, most important boarding school in the United States, you know, he's famous for saying, kill the Indian, save the man. This week on The Biden Files, the economy roars back under Biden, Congress passes a major infrastructure bill while Trump shouts from the sidelines, 
Biden ramps up federal pressure on vaccinations. The UN says global warming is now unstoppable. Cuomo quits and Kandahar falls as the Taliban looks set to take over Afghanistan. These are the Biden files. Day 199, August 6th. The American economy added 943,000 jobs in July. It was the best monthly showing in almost a year, bringing the unemployment rate down to 5.4%. Unemployment had soared at the beginning of the pandemic, spiking to nearly 15% in April 2020. President Biden is considering using federal regulatory powers and the threat of withholding federal funds from institutions to push more Americans to get vaccinated. That would be a huge potential shift in the fight against the virus and a far more muscular approach to getting shots into arms. The effort could apply to institutions as varied as long-term care facilities, cruise ships, and universities, potentially impacting millions of Americans. Roughly 90 million Americans are eligible for shots but remain unvaccinated. A woman who accused New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of groping her last year has filed a criminal complaint with the Albany County Sheriff's Department. The woman, Brittany Camisso, an executive assistant, said Cuomo groped her breast at the governor's mansion. He touched me not only once, but twice. Also, Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, has quit as Democratic support peels away from the embattled governor, who so far has refused to step aside. Day 200, August 7th. Biden's top aides were told that experts studying the mysterious illnesses affecting scores of diplomats, spies, and their family members are still struggling to find evidence to back up the leading theory that microwave attacks are being launched by Russian agents. That report came in an unusual classified meeting called by the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines. While Biden has said almost nothing publicly about the episodes, the National Security Council has begun an urgent effort to address the issue, and two separate task forces are now in operation. One is investigating the cause, and led by the CIA, there is another focused on finding commercial technology that could detect or block attacks. The Biden administration extended the freeze on federal student loan payments through January 2022nd. The pandemic relief, which suspends monthly loan payments and interest for 42 million Americans, have been set to expire at the end of September. Biden said this is the last time his administration will extend the freeze. Trump put out a statement linking to a New York Post article claiming that nearly 7,000 immigrants who tested positive for COVID have passed through a Texas city that has become the epicenter of the illegal immigration surge. This is false. The claims were part of a coordinated campaign and echoed by Ted Cruz, who blamed rising COVID rates not on unvaccinated Texans, but on migrants. Representative Chip Roy of Texas went even further, calling for Biden's impeachment and complaining about being forced to wear a mask on the floor of the U.S. House. In the wake of the United States women's soccer team winning bronze in Tokyo, Trump felt compelled to release a statement which read in part, quote, if our soccer team headed by a radical group of leftist maniacs wasn't woke, they would have won the gold medal instead of the bronze. Woke means you lose, everything that is woke goes bad, and our soccer team certainly has. They should replace the wokesters with patriots and start winning again. The woman with the purple hair played terribly and spends too much time thinking about radical left politics and not doing her job. To be fair, Trump was correct about Megan Rapino. She had a poor Olympic Games. Day 201, August 8th. President Joe Biden signed an executive order imposing new measures aimed at punishing Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko. As part of the effort, the Treasury Department will also issue its latest rounds of sanctions to date on Belarusian individuals and entities, including the Belarusian National Olympic Committee. 
Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin said that an ongoing congressional investigation of Trump's last days in office has found him to have been deeply involved with the Justice Department in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. Durbin, who also chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he had learned how directly personally involved the president was, the pressure he was putting on Jeffrey Rosen. It was real, very real, and it was very specific. Marjorie Taylor Greene mentioned the Alabama's lowest in the nation vaccination rate at a political fundraiser, eliciting cheers from her audience. Speaking at an Alabama Federation of Republican Women fundraiser, Green also suggested people should take up arms against volunteers promoting vaccines through door-to-door outreach, to which the crowd applauded and laughed. Day 202, August 9th. Afghanistan is quickly being overrun by the Taliban as three provincial capitals have fallen inside two days. Much of that province, which borders Turkmenistan, is now under Taliban control. The victories and Afghan government defeats come despite continued American air support. The Taliban have now seized close to 200 of Afghanistan's 400-odd districts. A major new UN scientific report has concluded global warming is now unstoppable and that fossil fuels have already heated the planet by roughly 1.1 degrees Celsius. The panel warns there is now a limited time to stop the most disastrous effects of global warming, which could be felt as soon as the end of this decade. The only way to avert some of the worst changes are by ending the use of fossil fuels. Even if nations started sharply cutting emissions today, total global warming is likely to rise around 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next 20 years. The grim UN report says we are locked into 30 years of worsening climate regardless of what the world does. The report concluded that humans have put so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that this warming will continue at least until the middle of the century, even if nations take immediate steps today to sharply cut emissions. This means extreme droughts, severe heat waves, and catastrophic downpours and flooding that will continue to worsen for at least the next 30 years. COVID surges in the states of Texas and Florida are causing panic, with the city of Austin warning its situation had grown desperate. A surge in cases driven by the Delta variant has swamped hospitals, where city officials were prevented from issuing mask mandates or vaccinations by order of the state's governor, Greg Abbott. A similar situation is unfolding in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis has also banned mask mandates. Both governors have falsely claimed that border migrants are driving the surge in coronavirus cases. Worth noting, Florida is not on a border. Louisiana also canceled the New Orleans Jazz Festival due to surging cases. Traditionally held in the spring, the festival was also canceled last year because of the pandemic. The USA is now seeing over 100,000 cases a day for the first time in several months. Day 203, August 10th. Democrats unveiled the most significant expansion of the nation's social safety net since the Great Society, unveiling a $3.5 trillion budget blueprint that would boost spending on health care, child care, education, and climate change. The bill would expand Medicare to include dental, hearing, and vision benefits, introduce universal pre-K, and form a new division to combat a warming planet. The new spending bill will be fully paid for by raising taxes on the wealthy, large inheritances, and corporations. Democrats will move to pass that budget without a single Republican vote. The Pentagon made COVID vaccines mandatory for all serving members of the U.S. military by September 15th. That deadline could be pushed up if the vaccine receives final FDA approval or if infection rates continue to rise. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told the troops that he will not hesitate to act sooner. Quote, to defend this nation, we need a healthy and ready force. A nationally prominent lawyer with ties to the embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned from Time's Up, 
an organization originally founded by Hollywood women to fight sexual abuse and to promote gender equality. Roberta Kaplan, who served as chairwoman of Time's Up and the co-founder of his legal defense fund, was one of several prominent figures involved in an effort to discredit one of Cuomo's alleged victims. Kaplan also represented Cuomo's top aide, who resigned on Monday. Day 204, August 11th. Bowing to a week of withering pressure, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said he would resign in 14 days. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat, will be sworn in to replace him. Hochul will become the first woman to run the state of New York. Cuomo, one of the nation's best-known leaders, was found to have sexually harassed nearly a dozen women, including current and former government workers. A report commissioned by New York State's Attorney General also found that Cuomo and his aides unlawfully retaliated at least against one woman, as well as fostering a toxic work environment. Cuomo stepped down before he became only the second New York governor to be impeached in that state's history. The Senate gave overwhelming bipartisan approval to a $1 trillion infrastructure bill to rebuild America's deteriorating roads and bridges and fund new climate resilience and broadband initiatives in a major win for President Biden. The plan represents the largest infusion of federal investment into infrastructure projects in more than a decade. The vote, 69 to 30, was also uncommonly bipartisan. The yes votes included Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the Senate Republican leader, and 18 other Republicans who shrugged off increasingly shrill efforts by Trump to derail it. The plan, however, is not a done deal. The House has said they will not vote on it until a larger budget plan is passed. Democrats immediately moved that onto the floor via reconciliation. The Senate also approved the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending blueprint early this morning in a 50-49 to 49 vote along party lines. The multi-trillion dollar follow-up package includes provisions to create universal preschool, affordable housing, and address climate change. The Democrats now plan to push the package through over the next few months. Texas Governor Greg Abbott appealed for out-of-state help amid dire warnings about the COVID wave swamping his state. Meanwhile, two of the state's largest school districts announced mask mandates in defiance of the Republican who has banned them. Abbott's plea came as a county-owned hospital in Houston raced tents to accommodate their patient overflow. Dallas and Austin school districts announced that they would require students and staff to wear face masks. The Delta variant and a lack of vaccinations in Texas is fueling the current wave. The Biden administration said it intended to disclose some long-classified documents that victims' families think could detail connections between the government of Saudi Arabia and the hijackers who carried out the 9-11 attacks. The court filing in a long-running litigation brought by the victims' families against Saudi Arabia, the Justice Department said the FBI recently closed a portion of its investigation into the attacks and was beginning a review of documents that it had previously said must remain secret with an eye toward disclosing more of them. Twitter suspended Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia from its service for seven days after she posted that the Food and Drug Administration should not approve the coronavirus vaccine and that vaccines were failing. The company said this was Greene's fourth strike, which means under that company's rules, she could be permanently barred if she violates Twitter's coronavirus misinformation policy again. The company issued Greene's third strike less than one month ago. Dominion Voting Systems sued the right-wing television networks Newsmax and One American News, accusing them of defamation. Dominion, which also sued Fox News earlier this year, argued in the filings that both channels served as platforms for flagrant falsehoods that devastated its reputation. Dominion is now seeking $1.6 billion in damages from each network. The company also sued Patrick Byrne, the former CEO of Overstock.com, who has publicly accused Dominion of rigging votes to ensure that Trump would not be re-elected. 
Byrne also falsely portrayed Dominion as linked to Hugo Chavez, the long-dead Venezuelan president. Dominion also pointed to an OAN broadcast featuring a segment interviewing a, quote, expert mathematician named Ed Solomon, who claimed to have found evidence within precinct-level reporting that the election was rigged by an algorithm. The suit provided proof that Solomon is not actually a mathematician. He is, however, a convicted drug dealer who was working as an installer at a swing-set construction company in Long Island at the time he gave the interview to OAN. Day 205, August 12th. The Texas House of Representatives authorized state law enforcement to round up and potentially arrest absentee Democrats who had fled the Republican-led chamber to block action on election legislation. The 80-12 vote empowered the House Sergeant-at-Arms to dispatch law enforcement officers to compel the attendance of missing members under warrant of arrest. After the vote, Dave Phelan, the Speaker of the Texas House, signed 52 civil arrest warrants. Governor Greg Abbott has vowed to call special session after special session to force passage of a restrictive voting measure as well as other conservative priorities. The number of Democrats who have returned to the state was not enough to bring the House to a quorum. 100 representatives are needed to vote on the election's overhaul. YouTube suspended Rand Paul of Kentucky for the second time after posting a video that disputed the effectiveness of wearing masks to limit the spread of coronavirus. A YouTube representative said the claims in the video had violated its policy on COVID-19 medical misinformation. Rand Paul replied that his suspension was a badge of honor. The office of the NSA's Inspector General said it would investigate a claim by Fox News personality Tucker Carlson that the surveillance agency, quote, has been monitoring our electronic communications and is planning to leak them in an effort to take this show off the air. The agency denied the allegation. Carlson made his eyebrow-raising claim during a June 28th primetime broadcast saying he had learned of the matter from a whistleblower within the U.S. government. That accusation prompted a rare public denial from the agency, which called it untrue, and said, quote, Carlson has never been an intelligence target of the agency, and the NSA has never had any plans to try to take his program off the air. Facebook removed hundreds of accounts, apparently involved in a coordinated anti-vaccine disinformation campaign run by Russia. The network of accounts targeted India, Latin America, and the U.S., aiming to spread false claims about particular vaccines. Russia has been attempting to smear the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines in an attempt to destabilize Western governments. One of the more outlandish attempts claims the vaccine provided the plot for the Will Smith film I Am Legend, which was released in 2007 and is based on a book from 1938. Young Pack, a former U.S. attorney in Atlanta, told Congress that his abrupt resignation in January had been prompted by a DOJ warning that Trump intended to fire him for refusing to say that widespread voter fraud had been found in Georgia. Pack, who provided more than three hours of closed-door testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee, stepped down with no notice on January 4th. Pack also described work done by state officials and the FBI to vet Trump's claims of voter fraud and said he had found no evidence to support those allegations. A Scottish judge opened a path to a possible investigation of the purchase of Trump's two golf courses in Scotland, a ruling that could force him to explain how he funded the deals. The Scottish government had initially resisted pressure to demand financial details from Trump through what's called an unexplained wealth order, a powerful legal instrument usually deployed against leading figures in organized crime or drug trafficking. However, the judge ruled that Avaz, an online campaign group, should be given the right to challenge the government's rejection of calls for such a move. Nicknamed McMafia Orders, 
Unexplained wealth orders were introduced in 2018 to strengthen Scottish government's armory against organized crime. Trump's accounting firm must give Congress his tax and other financial records from his time in the White House and for a longer period about his lease of a government-owned building for a hotel. However, the judge also ruled that the House Committee on Oversight and Reform was not entitled to other financial records covering years before Trump took office. San Francisco is to become the first city to restrict indoor activities only to citizens who have been vaccinated. That move, thought to be the first in the United States, comes as businesses and schools are increasingly requiring the vaccine to enter their premises. New York is to go with a similar move that will take place in September. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett refused to block a plan by Indiana University to require students and employees to be vaccinated against COVID. Barrett's action came in response to an emergency request from eight students. EU's vaccine mandate had already been passed, and IU had been the first university to mandate vaccination. Cities continue to fall in Afghanistan as the Taliban continue a dramatic string of captures since launching their offensive. The Taliban took Ghazni and Herat, seizing two strategically important cities en route to the capital of Kabul. The nation's second largest city, Kandahar, fell this morning, effectively giving the Taliban total control of the south of the nation. The insurgents have moved at speed, seizing new territories almost daily as U.S. and other foreign troops have withdrawn after 20 years of military operations. In response, President Biden sent 3,000 troops back into Kabul to help evacuate the American embassy. These are the Biden Files. Bad at Sports spoke to cartoonist Jessica Campbell. Campbell's cartoons and relief sculptures are on view at Chicago's MCA as part of the exhibit Comics in Chicago, 1960s to Now. Campbell talked about her childhood in Canada, her upcoming release from Drawn and Quarterly, and her newest works, which are Rugs. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. So I think maybe a great place to kind of just introduce you, your work, and that stuff is maybe if you could kind of talk about the work that's up in the MCA show. Yeah, okay. That's Now I have to think about what specifically is in there. Well, first of all, the show, as, as I'm sure you'll get into at the MCA, is Chicago Comics 1960 to 2021. Uh, and it, it has like a really great range of artists from that time period. It's such an honor to be uh, amongst them. I specifically have uh, an excerpt from a forthcoming book called Rave, which will be out in April of 2022. And then there are a couple of one-page kind of art world comics that I did for Hyper Allergic originally. And then I have these large, in something completely different, this other kind of like facet of my work is working with carpet. And I have these large carpet figures um, up on the one of the walls in that same room. So that's my work in the show. So uh, in terms of thinking about that carpet work, because I feel like that's uh, one of your major entrees into Chicago's art world and this, this kind of space that like, how do I put this? You, I think you're a, a kind of particularly interesting artist in this context in the same way that Edie Fake is, where uh, you split the difference between cartoonist and contemporary artist in a really assertive way in, the, in a, a, a very similar tradition to the one that Carrie James Marshall sketches out or that Chris Ware's, like Chris Ware and Ivan Brunetti trend a little more comics and Carrie trends a little more art world. But then you and Edie Fake also do that kind of umbrella space where those rugs are both kind of graphic and narrative and rugs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I maybe 
maybe we could start at your prior show at the MCA with the the what is it the car chapel. Right. So, so like Duncan mentioned, I'm Canadian. That's uh, um, Duncan's always, uh, you know, a fellow Canadian. So, so ready to point that out. Um, and I, in 2018, I had a show, solo show at the MCA, uh, as a part of their Chicago work series that focused on Chicago based artists. And I was also kind of as a, as a Canadian expat, you know, always going through like visa renewals or green card application at that point. And so I was feeling pretty dislocated from my home, Victoria, British Columbia, and missing it. And part of how I worked through thinking about that was thinking about Emily Carr, the the kind of, you know, most famous artist, certainly from uh, from Victoria, one, you know, one of the only or maybe the only famous artist from Victoria. And I made, I wanted to make an installation that kind of addressed her life and my life and this, our shared geography. Uh, but I'd also been, you know, to that point working in comics, working as a cartoonist uh, and making these fibers, carpet pieces, individual works. And I knew that I wanted to kind of bring those together um, and while also I had seen all these like, you know, carpeted rooms. I spent some time at the um, House on the Rock in Wisconsin and there's like shag carpeting all over a lot of the walls. And when I went, I put my hand on one of the walls and it was like soaking wet for some reason, which was like both uh, just like totally disgusting, really visceral experience. And, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of bring some of that, the like carpeted rumpus room feeling into the museum, the soaking wet shag carpet. Um, uh, and then, you know, in terms of thinking about comics, uh, the way I think that comics communicate is fundamentally really different from how visual art communicates and um, hanging comics in a museum uh, doesn't always... Uh, translate really well, or it can can make like a pretty tedious exhibition, which I think the MCA in this current exhibition has worked really hard um, to kind of counteract with the architecture. But uh, um, a way for me to kind of meld those worlds together was to look at earlier narrative traditions. So specifically for that exhibition, I looked at uh, the Scrivani Chapel that was painted by Giotto, an early Renaissance painter. Uh, and that was all, it features all these narrative panels of the life of Christ that go around the room. Um, so I kind of took that model and then just changed the panels out with scenes from my life and Emily Carr's life. Uh, and then it's all made out of carpet. And that's a very long-winded explanation of the, the premise of that exhibition, bringing all these kind of disparate things together. So I, uh, I I didn't find it long-winded at all, and I'm actually sort of curious about how how you blended the story of Emily Carr, who is herself a kind of uh, like a Canadian art legend and is considered one of our national treasures, and is also a kind of questioned figure in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and how how did you bring your life and her life together in that context? Um, well, I, I started by thinking about. Yeah, so she's like kind of a, a polarizing or controversial figure. I think especially in recent years, uh, Emily Carr's work and the Group of Seven, I think were really instrumental in some ways in constructing an idea of Canadian national identity, uh, um, you know, as being like 
you know, as Canadians of being like in this rugged wilderness. But Emily Carr differs from that group in that she was painting, um, she was painting the woods, but she was also painting totem poles and like um, um, evidence of inhabitation, uh, um, which in some ways, like she really revered the cultures she was living around, like Haida and the, the other groups in that region. Um, but she also had a very like colonial kind of paternalistic attitude towards them. She thought that they were like a dying people and she had to go and record their artifacts for posterity. Uh, and she also had no compunction about like stealing indigenous designs and then making ceramics and rugs, uh, as I found out in doing my research uh, and selling them because she wasn't really able to make a living as a painter. Um, so she's sort of problematic. She had a very, very Victorian kind of colonial attitude in general. Um, so she's kind of problematic in these ways. Um, she also, I think for me personally, growing up in the Pacific Northwest and, and in Victoria became symbolic of the island where I grew up that I was like totally desperate to escape for my whole childhood. And now I like want to go back really badly. Um, uh, so I, so I sort of like was not into her work. Uh, but then it, uh, now I've grown to have like an appreciation for the painting. And I, we had a lot of kind of geographical overlap. Her house that she grew up in was uh, like on the other side of a park from my house, about a, maybe a mile from the house where I grew up. And then she, uh, her, the house she lived in as an adult that she, again, cause she wasn't able to make living as a, a living as a painter. She built a house, like a boarding house, kind of apartment building and would paint in there. Um, but she made this mistake that where she, she put her studio on the ground floor so that tenants would have to come into the studio to pay rent or complain about whatever problems were happening in the building. And she found that perhaps unsurprisingly really disruptive to her work practice. Um, so she would often abscond up to the attic <laughs> and, and like painted the walls and the ceiling. And it's still an apartment building today. And so when I was a kid, one of my friends lived there with her mom and we could go up to the attic, which is, you know, it's like an attic in a private apartment building. It's not open to the public, but then it's, you know, all these paintings and, writing on the walls from one of, as, as Duncan says, like a Canadian treasure. Um, um, so that, that was like this pretty special experience. And then as a teenager, my first art exhibition in high school was at her um, childhood home, which is now a museum. Um, so, uh, um, so there are all these sorts of like, and she used to like paint, make, you know, landscape paintings of the beach that we would like have beach fires on and get drunk on when I was a teenager. And there's all these like kind of geographical overlaps. Um, and then in doing research about her, I discovered, you know, that she made rugs, discovered that she worked professionally as a cartoonist for, for a year in 1918 and also made diary comics. And so I felt like there were these, I don't know, I felt this sort of like kinship with her through doing this research. Chicago Punk's Blind Adam in the Federal League released their newest single this week off their sophomore album, An Act of Desperation. Making its radio premiere, this is Drier Ground.
and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen.